Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guests are Susan Dehan, Chairwoman, and Tim Dehan, President of Actionable Intelligence Technologies. Today we will discuss how white-collar crime goes largely unsolved. Susan and Tim are co-founders of Actionable Intelligence Technologies. She has developed an award-winning proprietary software that helps law enforcement agencies and forensic CPA firms around the globe find and prosecute large, complex financial fraud schemes and recover money back to the victims. Tim works in product development operations and sales at the company. Susan and Tim, welcome. Hi. Thank you very much for asking us to be a part of this interview. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a topic, it seems to me, that affects just about anybody who's involved in business, or certainly in white-collar types of business. What kinds of numbers are we talking about? Can you give us an idea, either domestic or international, of the amount of crime that is involved? Well, the true cost of white-collar crime is unknown, but it's been estimated to cost the United States more than $300 billion annually, and that's according to a, a, an FBI Wikipedia study, 2010. $300 billion as of 2010, and that's probably very low. But a lot of times it's very difficult to measure the cost of white-collar crime. It's hidden, and it's, it's, um, it, 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 it affects it's a ripple effect, and it affects a lot of a lot of um, people, industry, job loss, uh, et cetera, where it's hard to actually measure it. Let's go back to basics for a second. How do we define white collar crime? What are we talking about? Is this computer hacking? Is this somebody who writes checks on the company checks? What exactly is it? Well, it's really a, just, a, if you would, a comparison of uh, what's sometimes called the blue-collar crime, or um, it, it is, um, it's, it's not the in-your-face violent crime, robbery, breaking and entering, uh, some type of violent type of uh, behavior, you know, theft, um, carjacking, and so forth. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it gets so much attention and causes people uh, to, to get uh, quite outraged. <clears throat> the white-collar crime... Is, is really done by people with higher skill sets, uh, accountants, or at least people who are uh, working with those skills to uh, come up with complicated schemes, uh, to uh, embezzle, to um, loot different businesses, to um, scam, as you mentioned, uh, computer hacking. That's a big, a big push. Uh, the New York Times had an article several years back that described that the, the crime bosses um, – up in New York, New Jersey, the uh, organized crime mafia types were, were moving out of uh, extortion and racketeering, and they were getting into medical fraud. And 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 uh, because it was a, it was a better paying business to be in, and they could make more money in doing it. But the sophistication of it is what perplexes everyone, uh, and and also because it's hard to determine if people are guilty. You, you're familiar with the court um, cases where it goes on for some period of time, and then people are found. Uh, not guilty for insider trading or it's overturned. SEC just had several cases that uh, went against them. So by the time all this happens with the white collar crime, the public isn't really sure how guilty anybody really is. So that that's the, the misnomer with the white collar crime. It's just very hard to, to uh, pin down who actually is guilty of what. Does it include things like ID theft and hacking? Or do those fall under some other label? No, identity theft, sure. Identity theft, hacking, um, Medicaid fraud. Um, yeah, and also the, 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 new, the new phrase now, which, which is sort of uh, uh, in, in, encroaches on the, on the white-collar crime, is, is if you're doing it for money and you're sophisticated, it's basically white-collar crime. So, but now they, they more term it uh, cyber crime. And, of course, um, there's a lot of money, and, and if you can break into the banks and you can break into the uh, the uh, information systems, whatever, you know, all these uh, breaches that we've seen uh, with everyone's background information, if you can then create those people 
open up accounts, take out mortgages, all types of manner of fraud schemes. That's uh, that could, has potential to be in the in the hundreds of billions of dollars, and and that's the goal. It, that's that's where all the money is: is to create false identities and and, and get past the initial checks that um, a, an institution would make uh, with enough account information, uh, social security numbers, addresses, and these types of things. So you could actually create some accounts, get some credit line, run the credit cards up, run the credit up, maybe get mortgages, create some business loans, and then uh, take that money and, and take off with it, and, and then you can shut down, walk away from those identities as needed. What about, for example, these huge hacks that we read about in the media regarding, for example, Home Depot, Neiman Marcus, Sony, these very large corporations that are hacked, even the government, they just had all of the employee data hacked from some foreign government, apparently. Is that, does that fall under the white-collar crime label? Um, the, the, the hacking itself and, and stealing of the, of the data wouldn't necessarily be a, a white-collar crime, but the, it's used for the purpose of white-collar crime largely. I mean, you may have a foreign government that wants some, some background information, personal information on government employees, especially with security clearances, but largely um, anyone who's going to have the sophistication to go in and hack and get the Home Depot or the Target and these other uh, companies and get all those uh, credit card information pieces. They, they want it for the money that they can turn around and generate. So the, the, the cybercrime events where they they broke, they hacked in, they got somebody's data isn't technically a white-collar crime, but they, they're doing it for the purpose of white-collar crime, to exploit all that information on people uh, who have good credit ratings and who have houses and addresses and, and Social Security numbers and other things that can be uh, leveraged with um, just a network of, uh, of fraud uh, globally and, and open up cards and every other thing. Tim, so you're saying that cybercrime and white-collar crime are not the same. They work sometimes in parallel or maybe there's some overlap, but cybercrime is one thing and white-collar crime is another? It, it's, it's a bunch of, yes, it, it's, 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 they're overlapping and to the extent that you may very well use the cyber uh, techniques to get the data you need to commit a white-collar crime. But if you're just a state-sponsored um, hacker and you're just trying to find out, um, you just want to get the government uh, information off of government systems, classified information, that, that may have nothing to do with um, white-collar crime. So there's, there's, a, there's an overlap for sure, and, and it's largely uh, necessary. The, the danger we're facing as we move forward is um, the ability for hackers to exploit um, cor major corporations and, and in, in fact, as we know, the, the, the government databases. Um, so for, for hackers to get in and get that information, um, now that opens up the possibility of uh, large-scale uh, theft of uh, personal information, which can then be used to exploit um, those folks who have those uh, assets, bank accounts, and other things, as well as uh, take their identities, run up uh, loans and, and other charges and so forth, and then uh, leave those people um, in, in, a, in a debt position that now they have to extract themselves and show that it wasn't them who took out the loan or took out a mortgage or who charged those uh, items on credit cards. So it's, it's quite a, it's the specter of the ability for sophisticated hacking teams <clears throat> to get this large-scale da data that you mentioned uh, is, is obviously quite dangerous um, for, the, for the general public and because of the large volume of money that can be made by these uh, organizations. With the big data that is, has become so prevalent with companies and the government gathering information on citizens with and without their knowledge and with and without their authorization and preparing profiles and storing data, what kind of an impact does this have on this danger that you're describing? Well, it's, it's, it's I think you, where you're going with this, it's somewhat obvious. Uh, if they're going to assemble all the data, uh, and so much data on, on every move that people make, um, obviously it's going to be a lot easier to exploit those people 
uh, either break into their bank accounts, get into their lines of credit, or use those uh, pieces of personal information that'll that'll get past the first layer of uh, opening up bank accounts and opening up credit cards and and incurring uh, obligations on the, against those people. So it's um, it's formidable, you know. And and any groups that can the problem with the hacking is that <clears throat> it's just a period of time. So um, anyone who's got sophisticated hacking skills, if given enough time. Can, can essentially break any encryption. Uh, so all the corporations that, that can't maintain this information, especially if they're aggressively uh, um, collecting it, like Google, Amazon, and so forth, in the big data uh, efforts, uh, they're, they're selling such a, a, a profile on so many people, millions of people, that it, every, every aspect of what they do, where they drive, how they talk on the phone, who they talk to, you know, what locations they, they uh, frequent, uh, now you're putting um, not only the ability of, of bad organizations to uh, take that and, and, uh, and commit fraud with it, but you're also putting people in more of a vulnerable situation uh, personally, their personal safety and personal security, as well as their families. So, for example, if you were um, a terrorist organization like the uh, ISIS and these other groups who um, are targeting a lot of U.S. And, and French and, and uh, you know European countries over overseas. If you could if you could hack that data, and find out all the information about the movements of people, who they're talking to, where they're talking to them, you could you could potentially leverage that and, and kidnap their children or their their family members and so forth because you could you could assemble that type of uh, profile on on, a, on targets. So that's quite uh, that's quite uh, disturbing to be quite honest. I was going to say, and as you as your point you're making, I think it's it's really facilitated by the collection of the big data, and then if the big data cannot be uh, secured, and uh, then then it's vulnerable. As we're discussing it, it seems to me that there needs to be some way to classify or subclassify. I don't know what the term would be the white-collar crime into categories. So, for example, if we're talking about ID theft, is it just garden-variety ID theft, some individual who stole one person's ID, or is it somebody who stole another person's identification for purposes of an IRS return, or is it a more organized group? It, it, how do you look at it to get your arms around the topic? Is it by size? Is it by type of white-collar crime? Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Well, okay. Go ahead. There's many different types of white-collar crime, and there's always going to be white-collar crime, especially in the upper class, and that's because there's a certain group of individuals who, who desire and crave money and power. And some people have different reasons that they feel as though that they deserve it, that they're deserving of it, or everybody is doing it, so tax evasion, insurance fraud, or I deserve it because I wasn't getting paid enough for my accomplishments, you know, like a corporate fraud, or they're going to they're gonna borrow money and rationalize it, and that's an embezzler. Or there, some people justify it and say this crime really didn't hurt anyone, and that could be a crime against the government, tax evasion, different things like that. So there's different, there's different uh, forms of white-collar crime. And the response from, from law enforcement and government in general is, is largely, not completely, but largely uh, in terms of these kind of crimes, is going to be dictated on how they're going to be able to respond with, with the, they're really going to have to look at the volume or of the, of the uh, criminal acts. So in other words, does one individual stole an identity, or is it, a, is it an organization that stole thousands or hundreds or thousands? And how much money was stolen? Was it a couple thousand dollars, or was it a couple hundred thousand dollars? That's what's going to, unfortunately, that's, that's the name of the game. The, the, the law enforcement agency only has so many personnel. They can only do so many investigations at a given time. They're going to have to go after the larger organizational-looking uh, targets. And, um, and that's what is frustrating to many people, when they're a victim of a crime, a white-collar crime, where it's a lower-level organization um, that's not doing thousands and so forth, there's not going to be a lot of response because law enforcement just doesn't have the manpower, 
and the technology and the uh, resources. And then not only does law enforcement not have it, but if they do successfully get through and find a, a target and, and get in a position to prosecute, then, then they have to rely on the court system having the capacity to prosecute that many uh, targets. And the court systems, as you'd imagine, the, the dockets are pretty full. Uh, there's only so many judges. There's only so many courtrooms. There's only so many prosecutors. So the prosecutors have to have to take a hard look at every case. What's the probability they could be successful and get a guilty uh, verdict? Can they get some assets recovered? Can they uh, get it, um, prove it? You know, they, the last thing they want to do is go a year, year and a half in the in the court system uh, with all the work that they'll do to have this uh, lost either uh, in trial or on appeal. So it's it's a tough problem, and the, and the larger the volume, <clears throat> the harder it is. And the bigger the numbers, and like you say, with the big data and these massive breaches of data, law enforcement's going to have to gear up for the the, the biggest and, and most uh, dangerous organizations and try to attack them. That's that's really the reality of it. What kinds of numbers are we talking about in terms of, I, I know that it's hard to put an exact number on the amount of white-collar crime that goes by, but we're saying that most of it goes largely unsolved. What do we mean by most of it goes largely unsolved? Is it half? Is it 80%? What kinds of percentages or numbers are we talking about? That, that, <clears throat> that typically means that the government cannot accurately estimate it, is what that means. And let me give you an example. You remember back the uh, Enron scandal, where the Enron accounting scandal uh, blew apart, and uh, Arthur Anderson was uh, humiliated in that, and they were brought in, and then the personnel were were uh, charged and convicted of uh, facilitating the, uh, the the scandal with the uh, uh, you know the uh, offshore movement of monies and everything else and the overinflation of their revenues and so forth. Um, um, Enron actually had 700, they had more than 700 partnerships overseas, most of them in the, in the uh, Cayman Islands. So what, what, what people are looking at is, is the volume is such, the IRS, for example, couldn't determine how much taxes that Enron had, had failed to pay. It was beyond their capability to figure out exactly how much taxes were owed. That's the scope. So that's what, what we're dealing with is uh, when they get into these kinds of numbers uh, and this kind of volume, the, uh, to ascertain exactly what happened, what's criminal, uh, how much was it, um, is beyond the capacity of, of the governments and law enforcement to really analyze it. Let me give you another example. <clears throat> You're familiar, I'm sure, with uh, Loretta Lynch, the new attorney general, and, and the case that when she was in her nomination uh, hearings, the case with HSBC that um, was uh, brought up that, that they had only gotten a slap on the wrist with a $1.9 billion deferred prosecution agreement. Um, the reason some people were upset with that <clears throat> is that HSBC had moved more than $200 trillion, trillion with a T, which is actually the world's uh, GDP. So they had moved, the, in a subset of their accounts, they had moved $200 trillion through in three years' time. And that was largely the international elite, if you would. It was the high net worth people from, from many countries, the richest of the rich, and largely that money represented tax evasion or capital flight or illicit flows. It wasn't necessarily a criminal predicate crime. It wasn't necessarily narcotics or, or embezzlement, but it was, it was wealth that was being evaded uh, through this mechanism that they facilitated for the for the richest in the world. So when when we talk about how where's the white collar crime begin and end, if you if you're pushing 200 trillion dollars through one bank, through just a subset of their accounts, no one can can figure out how much money is actually being moved and unreported and how much is being laundered and where what's the source of that money? You know, it's it's an estimate that it's high net worth tax evasion. There is some other kind of crime in there, of course. But it's it's virtually impossible for governments to get their arms around that. So how do you know that a white collar crime has been committed? Somewhere the money's gone. <laughs> Somewhere the money's missing, okay. um, and um, that's largely. Or it wasn't the, the taxes weren't paid on it. 
and, and again, the, the, the IRS and the tax revenue agencies have a difficult challenge because they first have to detect that money existed and move through some accounts or businesses uh, just so they could figure out the taxes were due and owing on us. But that's that's usually the game is they see evidence of of um, you know corporate uh, uh, revenues coming through and and, and they, they have to do the analysis on the on the tax that should be uh, typically paid on such or you see uh, high net worth activity and behavior at a at a lower level where you see individuals who have unexplained income unexplained wealth and uh, they're and when they're looked at their their taxable income. That's reported is, is a fraction of what they're what they're basically living uh, with with the, with the uh, properties and the and the luxury cars and the international travel and so forth. Is there a definition or a way to draw the line between white collar crime and something that might seem suspicious but might not necessarily be a crime, like someone opening an account overseas? Or, for example, if you look at the actions of government entities, it's been in the news recently over, I don't know, the last two years that the government itself was refusing tax refunds to individuals without due process, and most of those people were never able to recover that money, and that police departments were detaining people without a warrant and taking away any cash that they had on the assumption that this was illegal money, even though they were not having any due process. It, was that a white-collar crime? Where where are the lines? Uh, Jimmy, it's a white-collar crime perpetrated by the government. Is that what you're saying? Or was that discovering a white-collar crime that was undetected? Well, I'm asking, is it a white-collar crime if an entity, in this case the government, is taking money from citizens without due process? Would that be called a white-collar crime? What is the definition? Where do we draw the line? Mm, that's a good question. <laughs> I'd have to think about that. Uh, if, if, but technically, yes, it's, if, it's, um, if it's an illegal act, it, it's, it yeah. certainly is. And, and a lot of that uh, controversy on the, like you mentioned, that taking cash you know it's a it's an interesting equation it's, it's one of the most obviously most of all, almost virtually all this crime we're talking about white collar crime and, and most crimes um, are, except for crimes of passion are driven by the profit motive so if you pull someone over on the interstate and he's got fifty thousand dollars of cash in his trunk and he, he doesn't have a good answer why he's got fifty now granted in this country you, you want to put fifty thousand dollars in all your money in your trunk or under your mattress, you're, you're free to do it. And what's happening is someone is doing that and the government's taking it from them uh, and won't give it back, as you said. And um, that's the controversy. But by and large, those uh, seizures happen, and, and most of the time the people are couriers, and no one will come and claim that money. So it's a rare case where someone happens to have that kind of money in their car or in the trunk um, that comes in and claims it. And then I've never heard a good on why that, um, you know, what, what reason they had for the large sum of cash other than it's mine and I have a right to have it. So um, it's, it's a perplexing problem. It, the, the asset forfeiture rules are quite effective, and, of course, occasionally, occasionally there will be an instance where um, perhaps they shouldn't have seized that, that particular money or they shouldn't have seized that asset, that car. Um, may, maybe they were their analysis wasn't 100%. And, so you, you may get some some errors occasionally, but by and large those those are not challenged. It's a rare occasion you hear someone, uh, and then of course they could complain that law enforcement is too aggressive and so forth. And yes, there's, there's an occasional situation where that's occurred. But uh, a good a good uh, example is uh, the recent thing with the former speaker Denny Hassard. Here he's taken out cash. Uh, considerable cash, and, and he paid something along the lines of $3 million to somebody who was basically evidently extorting some money from him. And um, so in there is a, a crime, but, but the crime that's actually been uh, moved on or acted on is, is the, uh, um, the money laundering structuring law where he's, he's taken out the um, uh, evasion of the uh, $10,000, so he's tried to avoid the structuring. And um, so it's... Um, in other words, 
was it really a, was it wrong for Denny Hatcher to take cash out of his bank every day for, for that length of time? I'm not sure it was, although it is technically not allowed. The, the other crimes that might have occurred um, would probably uh, be of more significance than that. So every time we put a law in place to, to, to close the door on the criminal organization, some unwitting uh, citizens may stumble into that for some reason. Did you say that it's not allowed for people to take money out of their account? No, what's not allowed is for them to intentionally avoid the reporting. So if you take $10,000 out every day, the bank is required to file a suspicious activity report or a currency transaction report and say that this customer is taking this cash, which is over the $10,000 limit out. And if you do it frequently in some type of um, suspicious um, uh, matter, meaning every day for a couple months, uh, when normally a, a regular person, average person would probably send a wire transfer or get an official bank check for a larger sum of money. Um, so you're allowed to take your cash out all day long. What you're not allowed to do is limit or structure the withdrawals. And uh, and that's, a, that's kind of a new wrinkle for a lot of folks who, who don't realize I can't go to the bank every day and take out um, – Nine thousand dollars, if I feel like it, because um, it would appear that you're you're trying to uh, avoid the reporting from the bank to the to the government. So it's illegal to take out, just in this example that you're giving us, nine thousand dollars every day, even though it's your money. Um, yes, if you and, and yeah, that's right. Because it, what they're going to say is you have that label come to you and say that's where he got in trouble. Was evidently when he when the FBI questioned him. He, his, his answers were not um, uh, acceptable, and, and I don't know what his answers were, but um, they would come to you and say, "Why? what is the purpose of you withdrawing money underneath the $10,000 reporting limit every day? Are you trying to avoid reporting from the bank? And we don't know what the answer he gave was, but um, that's, they have to prove that you, you knew you were taking the money out to avoid the, um, the reporting. So that intentionally taking money out to avoid or intentionally structuring deposits and putting money in to avoid the $10,000 threshold um, is, is illegal, which is, you know, kind of, but then, and that's just driven by the, by the money laundering of the, uh, largely the narcotics uh, has driven that. The, the, the uh, vast amount of cash on the streets over the years has forced uh, drug dealers Obviously, they get they gotta get that money in the bank, and if you put large sums in, then they they'll report you to uh, the government, and they'll come come look, come around looking to see who you are, why you're putting this cash, and where, what's the source of your cash, what business do you have, and um, so the idea is they they put what they call the smurfing. Have you heard this term smurfing? And um, they would get a bunch of people uh, in the neighborhoods, and they would all go in to the same branch. Maybe they they drive around in a van with 10 people in it, and they'd all walk into the branch and all deposit 9,000 and change, walk out, go another branch, deposit another 9,000 and change, and they'd do that throughout the city and put large sums of money in. But they needed, they needed teams. So that's what was uh, a way to defeat the uh, reporting. So anytime you get near that reporting, whether it's the $10,000 or even for money orders, postal money orders, um, money exchange businesses, they have other thresholds too, $3,000, $3,500 buying money orders and so forth, and a series of money orders. Anytime you get into that kind of behavior, the government requires the bank or the money service business to file uh, one of the various forms, which then, then they'll look at it and see uh, the, the government will look at it and analyze what type of behavior is going on, and they may open an investigation if it's warranted. And, and I guess that's what happened with Denny Hassert was there was such a large amount of money and it was over such a long a long enough period of time that they they decided to go look at it um, so yes that's it's technically illegal if you avoid the uh, reporting requirements was he charged with white collar crime <clears throat> yes he he was he was indicted uh, for money laundering well he was indicted for bank secrecy act violations which is uh, a money laundering um, method and so, yes, he's, uh, he's definitely, he's, they're pursuing him for white-collar crime, exactly. 
So money laundering, at the risk of sounding ignorant, money laundering is white-collar crime? It's, yes, it's a, um, there, there are charges for the act of money laundering it, itself. And normally money laundering is um, required because you have some predicate crime, which is the, the legal definition. Uh, you're either uh, involved in narcotics, um, embezzling money, you've, somehow you've stole money, you've got an illicit source. Somehow you got money, it wasn't yours, and, and you need to hide the source of money so you can use it. So if you show up at the bank with a large sum of cash, they're going to say, right, where you got to fill out the form. Where's the source of your money? So you don't want, if you're a criminal, you don't want to do that. You want to hide that. So you, you have to either put it in structured deposits. You have to put it in multiple banks. You have to uh, find places you could pay cash. You could go to casinos. You could, you could put a lot of money in, buy a lot of chips, gamble for the night and cash out your chips and get a check uh, and, and get money back from the, um, the, the uh, casino, you could buy art, you could buy um, insurance policies, put a lot of money into insurance policy, then cancel it and get a check from the insurance company. So those instruments who are, who are third-party instruments, they're not going to be scrutinized, and you've effectively, if you would, you've, you've laundered the money, you've, you've masked the source, and now it looks like you're getting a check from an insurance company when actually it was just your scheme to, to, uh, to give the insurance company money maybe with several payments or, or what have you, but now you've got a, a check or a source that no one is going to question. But money laundering itself is a crime. I think, I want to say 1986 is when that law was passed. I guess I thought that white-collar crime was separate from drug crime, which was where drug laundering and money laundering were, but I'm hearing you say that they're all in the same bucket. Well, the, the narcotics, is of course not white collar crime, but the narcotics once they get the money, um, if they kept it cash, it wouldn't be a white collar crime. But they they can't go to uh, Paris and stay in a hotel with cash. They they have to have a credit card. They have to buy a plane ticket. So they have to convert that money into a bank. They got to get into the banking system so they could they could live that lifestyle and benefit from those funds. So once the narcotics or whatever the other the predicate crime is. Once that crime has been successfully uh, transacted and they now have the cash, now they've got to go into the white-collar crime business. They've got to become money launderers. Or one of the things that government's uh, been successful at is they offer with undercover teams to, to launder the money for these guys. So they'll show up and, and uh, undercover teams and they'll say, hey, we could launder your money for this percentage and so forth. So they'll, do, they'll pick up the cash. They'll, they'll launder it through the bank's and then they'll build a case, and, and that's actually what the HSBC case was about, was the New York uh, task force, the money laundering task force, El Dorado, started a case, of what they call a money pickup case, where they offered to launder money for bad guys. And then after they get enough for this money launder, they know where it has to go. They're able to map out the whole organization. So a lot of, a lot of uh, the money laundering uh, investigations and a lot of the uh, people who were found guilty of it are actually um, uh, predicate crimes are, are not white-collar crimes. A lot of them are historically have been the, the hard uh, crime, the blue-collar crime, the uh, extortion, the um, prostitution rings, the uh, narcotics, of course, and, and other things. But they, they're forced into the money laundering just so they could do what they want to do with that money. So there's an overlap is what I'm hearing you say. One crime is not white-collar crime, but then when they start looking to mainstream that cash, that's when the white-collar crime is applied. Sure. And, and a lot of the, well, the cartels, the big cartels, they, they've always, they've always, well, not always, but they, they, for a long time, they've used accountants to facilitate the money movements and the, and the money laundering. So they, they're quite adept. They're quite skilled, uh, professional. Uh, the bigger the organizations, the more talent that they bring in, um, to, to facilitate the, the white-collar crime part of the criminal operation, absolutely. And the other thing they do is they tend to they tend to move into, you know, sort of like a business into the most lucrative of crimes. So even even if uh, they've made all this money with the narcotics, they like to get into other other areas, uh, maybe crime or maybe even legitimate businesses. But they like to fund casinos or properties and what have you, nightclubs, of course, and other things that can be 
making the money straight away. Uh, so they have a history of doing that once they've got the resources to do it. This issue of cash might at first glance seem to be an indicator of wrongdoing or crime, but when we take into account that perhaps as much as 10% of American households don't have bank accounts, there's obviously a part of the population that isn't committing any crime, but they're conducting all of their transactions in cash. How do we make heads or tails out of that, that there are a lot of people out there who are paying in cash, not because they're criminals, but because they don't have bank accounts. True. Yeah, there's, there's, um, in, in, um, there's a lot of folks globally that, that, that don't, or the unbanked, the unbanked population, uh, and some of the um, newer payment systems like M-Pesa, which started in Kenya, uh, is something you can pay. You could go to a kiosk, give them cash. They'll put they'll put in the, you have an M-Pesa account on your phone, and now you could move money around just like you had a bank, and you could wire money. You can send it around via M-Pesa to all your people you need to send it to as long as they have the M-Pesa account. So there is movement for the unbanked, if you would, to to get the facility uh, to be able to function and, and pay for things and, and pay for bills and, and taxis and you name it, they can, they can pay for it in some of these regions. And, and some of those systems are coming. Um, for, po- for folks who are, who are just strictly cash-based only, um, you know, the, largely it's, um, they're probably not going to violate reporting thresholds. Um, you know, they, they, paying for things with cash, as long as it's um, not a taxable event, for example, if they, they hire someone to do work and they, they're supposed to, pay taxes and the person is supposed to pay taxes but they take the cash under the table of course that's a that's a violation that uh, that often happens on the on the cash basis side but uh in general the the government isn't uh spending a lot of resources to stop that at the, at that level at that at that range of the spectrum it's just like you say it's a, it's a reality of the situation people don't have the, the ability to get into a bank account get it open and, uh, and of course, bank accounts can be expensive. You got to pay your monthly fees. You got to pay your transaction fees. If you're moving money around to relatives and so forth, um, you, you, it can get quite expensive. What can companies, what can individuals do to protect their assets, whether it's their ID from theft or whether it's their corporate data, whatever it is that is the victim of this white-collar crime that we're talking about, what kinds of steps can people and companies take to know that a crime has committed or to know that they're vulnerable or to stop it? Well, like, like most things, it's, it's, it's many facets, uh, multi-layers. So, for example, password securities. Um, some people write their passwords down and are, are quite, uh, you know, they, they try to, you try to get a password anymore on, on any system and, they're usually rating how strong it is. So people need to take passwords and and their uh, password location and security much more serious. Also, shredders. One of the smartest things everybody could do is, you know, you get your envelopes from the bank and the brokerage account or any type of mortgage or what have you. Um, There's some information on the the pages, certainly on the the envelopes um, that this stuff is coming in. So don't throw out. Uh, anything with your certainly your, your name, address, your your, your uh, personal information, certainly not your social security number, your account numbers. So people are pretty bad at that in general. They they just throw everything in the trash. But gar- uh, people can do garbage runs and go through the neighborhood, pull out uh, a lot of this type of information. Now they've got a fair amount of um, of, of uh, data on a, on an individual, much like if they stole their mail, which is maybe a little harder to do, but people would be surprised how much is taken out of trash cans uh, at their home or their office. So uh, scanners, not scanners, uh, shredders at the home and office are quite useful. Locking up the um, sensitive records, your bank account records, your other kind of uh, important financial data, securing it in either a safe or a strong box um, so that no one else, you know, an employee or someone who comes in your house for some maintenance or what have you, is not able to get that type of information, steal your passport, steal whatever. 
So there's a lot of information that people don't realize they're leaving around, and uh, they should, you know, do an audit on themselves and try to try to tighten that up. And then there's various services that'll alert you should you uh, someone get some information, start trying to open bank accounts, and they they are can be of some use. Um, at least they could limit the damage and let you know that you've been compromised uh, sooner. They can't stop it. As far as I know, there's not, there's not a system that actually stops it except for your individual credit card uh, company that may, they may quickly shut it down. Um, and sometimes that frustrates us, you know, because we're trying to travel and we, we get a block on our card and we have to call the bank and so forth. But that, those types of aggressive uh, anti-fraud programs are probably the most important that uh, you have a bank that's got a lot of that and, uh, and they're aggressive with it. Because uh, once, once they get your information, if, if you're on vacation or you don't know for a couple weeks, that's when you could really end up with a major uh, uh, disaster that you could come home to, to have to unravel. It would ruin your credit rating and spend months and, and so forth uh, trying to get that fixed. What about companies, uh, Tim, other than the shredder and the password, how can they even detect that they have been hacked or that someone within the company, because sometimes the white-collar crime is committed from by an employee or an executive in the company, right? Right, and, you know, a couple things there. One, obviously, you have the IT side of the house, which um, is, you know, got a lot of access. So you've, you've got to be quite vigilant on who your IT team is and uh, do good good uh, vetting when you hire them and, and do some periodic uh, assessments. You could bring in some third-party groups to, to do an analysis and make sure everything looks correct and is being treated correctly and handled correctly. There's no incidents or uh, indications that um, some, some personnel uh, on the IT team is, is trying to access uh, sensitive information that they don't have a right, or not a right, but a, uh, the authority to look at, like the books and records and bank accounts and so forth. On the bank account side, or the financial side, with the, the larger the firm, uh, uh, I guess it's all relative, but what's happened in, in some of the big, the big frauds uh, with the accounting scandals where the CFOs were involved and so forth was uh, in the 80s, uh, the, there was a lot of intense competition with the CPA firms for the audit. So the audits, the prices on audits, fell by, by near 50%. So the CPA firms didn't have the, uh, well, they, they, they chose to find methodologies and sampling techniques so that they could do an audit without having to expend the, the tremendous amount of man hours to manually review virtually every document and every transaction the corporation had done. So that pressure to be competitive on pricing for these audits um, what that left was they were basically going to be sampling certain areas of, of the records one month or uh, a couple different months, but not all the months, so not all the accounts. So then what happens is, is, is over the decades, in the case of Enron and MCI, Tyco, these types of, of uh, frauds, the people who, who grew up in the accounting department, by the time they got senior enough to be the CFO and positions assistant uh, CFO, stuff like this, they knew how the audits would be conducted. They knew how to control what the audit team was going to be given. And in turn, they could then hide, hide offshore accounts or, or partnerships or other types of monies and park it in other places that they would not then give the audit teams access to. So that's why so many of the audits failed was internally the accounting folks had learned over the years how you can hide uh, activity. And, and that, the only way you're going to solve that is, a, is periodically coming in with a, uh, an, a, an audit team that's going to do a, a forensic accounting assessment. They're going to have to come in and do a due diligence, if you would. It's, it's more than just a traditional audit. It's, it's specifically looking for evidence of uh, accounts that uh, have been uh, created for, just for the purpose of hiding monies, uh, moving monies, obscuring what actually happened. So that's that's the best defense for a corporation is to intentionally hire people that are going to come in and give them a robust due diligence 
it's going to cost more money than the standard audit, but um, the, the, the risk of letting an audit go and, and end up with a, uh, an Enron type of scenario is, is that's, the, uh, that's the alternative. I imagine that must be very time-consuming and costly, right? Well, it, um, it's, it, it's, I, I hate to plug our software too, too blatantly here, but uh, with technology, yes, you can do it much quicker, much faster, especially when it's a confined environment. Like, uh, for example, you would have a corporation, you would have in certain bank accounts, they would be static. You wouldn't, it wouldn't be like you're going in like law enforcement has to do and you have to find maybe hundreds of bank accounts. That might be in different bank institutions. Um, with a corporation uh, or a forensic accounting team, uh, they could come in and be be fairly efficient now, uh, especially with technology like we we offer. We have some CPA firms doing just that. But yes, it, um, it is a it's a more aggressive, more robust uh, effort. Uh, but I think the value the value is there for a firm that's you know the CEO, the uh, the chairman, the board members. Their concern if they could have Something like this uh, come up and uh, surprise them. Certainly, it's, it's well worth the uh, the investment. It wouldn't necessarily have to do it every year, but but the, and that would be part of it. Is the randomness of it would be would be uh, quite helpful. What about the issue of offshore labor? These days, so many companies are relying on human resources that are overseas for everything from medical records to processing tax returns so that the individuals who are actually processing the sensitive data, people's lives and their tax returns and companies' data and medical records and so forth, they're actually not even within the United States. They're communicating electronically. What kinds of issues do companies and individuals need to be aware of in relation to the risks of white-collar crime in, in those situations? Well, I think you, you, you summarize it pretty good. Um, you've got very sensitive data in, in many of those cases in, in the hands of people that are, that are overseas. You don't know who's, who's got the security of the data center. Um, and, and, yeah, it's quite vulnerable. <clears throat> um, I think in general, uh, corporate worlds are, are very reluctant to put the most sensitive data uh, overseas for that purpose. Um, and then, but if they if they do, then they, they need to have a uh, a relationship with a firm in country that can do an audit and check and and verify the security is there, the security is in place, the IT uh, data center is 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 uh, got adequate safeguards. It's monitored for hacking. It's monitored for uh, employee theft of records. And uh, so, just like it was, if it was in the corporate uh, headquarters. Uh, they have to they have to spend the money to make sure that someone is overseeing and uh, and validating that that all that data is being handled correctly, just like they would if it was in their own building. And that's you know that's that's more money. But on the other hand, they're saving quite a bit of money by by having the overseas labor. So it's 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 part of the equation. But if they, as you see, with the amount of breaches that have happened recently, and they just keep getting worse. You know, they just keep getting larger. And um, and the the uh, data uh, security has not gotten less secure. It's getting more secure, but yet the hacking has is, is become more intense, and uh, it's just going to be this way. So it's a it's a constant safeguard, constant testing, uh, and that's the other part that whether it's um, the forensic accountant comes in and tests the company's books and records for evidence of uh, improprieties, or the data center, what they call like a red cell, someone comes in and tries to break in and do some hacking, do some intrusion, and then they judge them and grade how well they're detecting it. Uh, once it's detected, how quickly they shut it down, shut off the uh, network to the outside, and, uh, and how quickly they can uh, identify what happened. And then can they actually restore the data? One of the, one of the biggest problems, I suppose, that IT across the board always has is once they have a failure and the hard drives crash and servers go down and they're, they're corrupted, they, they pull out the backup systems and they try to recover and restore the data, put it back where it was, you know, with the, the pre previous day's um, archive. And, and there's a 
uh, a large percentage of times they're unable to recover uh, their data. So that's a, that's a test that needs to go on on an ongoing basis is part of the, uh, the full spectrum. So can you detect the intrusion? Can you do something about it? Can you shut it off? Can you determine where it came from? Can you determine where it went? How far did it get inside your systems? And then can you restore your systems uh, if it was uh, damaged and there was a problem? Uh, so and there's a lot of resources for that. There's, there's cybercrime task forces. Um, the U.S. Is a, is a robust cybercrime task force uh, that, that they, they can not necessarily respond and solve your problem, but they could give you a lot of guidance on best practices. Um, and uh, and that's, that's what companies should be looking at. If somebody comes to you and says, I have concerns, I haven't done anything, we're still in the last century in terms of our technology or in terms of our safeguards, what sort of steps would you as an outside consultant take in looking at their company? Would you be looking at accounting practices? Would you be looking at data-based practices? How would you go about it? Yeah, that's, like you say, the first step would be uh, lay out where they think they are in terms of uh, map their current operations, uh, map their safeguards, procedures, uh, and so forth, and then be an assessment of what what they're trying to accomplish, you know, how secure they're trying to be, um, how, how, how large in scope are their operations, um, how many uh, financial assets, how many... Um, entities that they have operating, and that would that would give you a judge on how how you're going to approach reviewing that type of business operation. So, um, and that's that's a typical uh, scenario is you you bring it in, and that's why all the CPA firms, the larger ones anyway, are in addition to doing the accounting, they also have a, uh, a, a the other half of the firm is in consulting, and uh, and that's the idea is that um, it's how you grow, how do you um, achieve the, the right systems, the right platforms, the right processes to prevent um, major catastrophe. Either it be um, you're not watching uh, the operation and, and you you run into trouble or you, you, you leave yourself vulnerable to some embezzlement or some frauds or some external uh, in, or internal. Uh, but that's, that's how we would typically proceed. What kind of resources in terms of human resources and in terms of budget should a company, is there a formula that a company should use that says you know, 2% or 5% or I don't know what the number is, they should allocate to guarding so that they can prevent or stop the white-collar crime issues that we're talking about? Is there a formula? I, I don't know of a, of a formula or, or, a, or a percentage uh, that, I've, that I've come across. Um, and really it's, um, you know, a lot of people talk about the cost and so forth. I, I think what they really want to focus on is that the cost of doing nothing is, um, is catastrophic, you know, in many cases. So, uh, and the other thing is that, you know, people will look at some IT expenditures and say, okay, it's a million dollars for servers and server rooms and multi-million dollars. And they'll, they'll put a tremendous amount of resources in uh, infrastructure um, and, and even assets like uh, buildings and, uh, and, and mills and, and different kinds of machinery and equipment. But they, they tend to uh, go light on the uh, infrastructure to do what you're talking about, to to analyze what they're doing um, in terms of uh, due diligence, um, in terms of, uh, you know, making sure that they're not vulnerable to uh, uh, embezzlement and so forth. So they, they tend to under underspend in, in that uh, regard. They, they, you know what the problem is, is that <clears throat> it's just human nature. Normally, you're trying to comply with what you have to do. So the product and the customers, you know, require you to, build certain things, spend R&D money, and put that product out there and, and then market it and advertise it. And those costs, if you don't do them, you're, you're not going to have a market, you're not going to have a product, you're not going to be in business. And then you do what the accountant tells you you have to do at the bare minimum. You've got to do the taxes, you've got to do the accounting. Um, and the accountant, um, they're not aggressive in terms of uh, 
some of the, the product development engineering types or the sales and marketing people. So they, they don't usually fight for the resources that other components in the company may, may insist on or tell them that we're not going to be able to do this if we don't, if we don't have these uh, R&D monies or we don't have this type of marketing campaign where we can spend this kind of budget. Accountants are more reserved and they're not as uh, aggressive and demanding, I, I guess I could say. So they, they end up with the short end of the stick very often and they don't get the assistance of a uh, due diligence team or a, uh, a special inspection or a, uh, a review. And it would be quite smart, uh, especially um, with any indication, um, high turnover or turnover of key personnel in, in, in critical jobs. Uh, good time to, to do some of your audit work on your IT staff, IT procedures. Uh, look at who's been in and out of different uh, accounts, who's tried to maybe uh, log in to um, the uh, accounting system or what have you, and then also evaluate the uh, the books and records and, and how the accounting has been done by the accounting team. You talked about software earlier. What role does software play? I think you said that it sped up the process. But can you tell us in greater detail how important is software and how much of a role does it play in detecting and or preventing white-collar crime? Well, there's two, there's two uh, domains, if you would. There's, there's the uh, automatic detection or anomaly detection um, or, or self-reporting. So in, in an accounting system or a payment system, uh, you can have uh, some basic uh, analysis with, you know, who are the who are the outliers is really you're looking for. If you have uh, double billing or you have embezzlement schemes going on, uh, if you've got vendors or if you're, you're you've got a payment system, uh, you're looking for uh, traditional uh, flags. Um, and there's a few things that are good to do uh, that, the, that the the data system or the automated type of system will do. Ratio analysis. Uh, vertical analysis, different things like what has happened with specific components of the operation year to year, time frame to time frame. So if suddenly a certain component uh, in the sales and marketing or the production or the R&D group or, or some inventory is suddenly going up out of proportion to the volume of sales, that's something you would flag, something you would look at. If you see um, outliers in your, in your regression analysis, and, and a lot of the accounting systems will have such tools, or you have a lot of tools you can port your data into those, and that will give you some flags and you'll go review them. Then you could, you could dig in and look, look further. But the, the, so that's one domain, and uh, companies try to do as much as they can in government payment systems and Medicaid and Medicare and any, any type of large billing operation that's vulnerable to frauds is trying to put as many expert rules in to pick off um, someone who might be uh, embezzling, stealing, and that type of thing, fraudulent claims and fraudulent payments. Uh, the problem is you, you'll get really the, the new people or the amateurs um, is what you really pick up there. What, what happens is that the more sophisticated a criminal can be and the better they can, they can run their transactions so that they, they will not be the top uh, entity from money out. They will not be an outlier if they're very sophisticated. They will live in, in the noise. They'll live in the average, and it's very difficult to pull them out um, without a whistleblower. In fact, um, whistleblowers are responsible for the vast majority of accounting frauds, not the audits, internal or external teams. And largely because of these very methodologies, they, they intentionally try to fit inside what's normal and, and they may open up multiple entities to push more money, but they won't take a singular entity, a payment path, and, and, and crank it way up and, and be at the top of the list of monies, monies out. And then the other side of the coin where technology can help quite a bit is to go past that automated detection type of platform, you have to do what we conventionally refer to as a, as a financial investigation. You have to... You have to get all the records. You have to follow it down. You have to get, here's an invoice that says it was paid, it was this much money. You get the checks, you get the return check or the payment system, find out how it was paid, see the backup documentation on that item, and then you follow it down. And, and that's, 
that's where the, the fraud is ultimately going to be seen because the money didn't go to what the, what the general ledger says. It, it, it was it was a, diverted by an accountant, someone in payments, and maybe they have someone helping them. Maybe it's just them. Uh, they they've managed a scheme. But the only way you're going to find some of this is if there's a human being in the system who's willing to lie and willing to certify something happened, like we received all those units or we purchased all these things or these monies all went to this following uh, uh, vendor, um, then the only way that's going to be discovered is you're going to have to go in and you're going to have to review a lot of records that have to do with the, those monies. That's where, where technology can come in um, and that's where we work is in the ability to read the invoices, the journals, the journal ledgers, the bank statements, the uh, financial, the, the tremendous volume of financial records. Where normally what used to take someone a year or several years, months and years to, to analyze and take those records, put them into an Excel spreadsheet and what have you, uh, with, with technology now we can do that in, in, in actually in a, in a day or several hours. So when you get a large-scale situation where you couldn't have analyzed all the volume, all the data, now you can. And now you could go and test. You could go do a due diligence. You could do um, different sectors of the business. You could do certain areas. And you could do 100% of the data uh, quickly and, and, and effectively, where in the past it would have taken you months and years to try to do that testing. And, and it would be cost prohibitive that way. But now you can do it uh, quick and fast. and um, and really analyze things. And, 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 and so what the, the big data system or the data expert rules system can't discover, uh, a, a traditional financial investigation or forensic accounting due diligence can. What suggestions, what tips would you share, Tim, for our listeners to take back to their companies on ways that they can implement in their work, in their projects, or in a big picture way in their companies to address the issue of white collar crime. Well, some of the things we've discussed, um, you know, I think that the the randomness of of an inspection uh, is key. Um, you know, certain people in the in the company, if, if it's internal folks who are who are uh, misbehaving and diverting monies or doing doing illegal things. Uh, the idea is to not have them get wind of it. So that, that's a challenge. And, uh, but, you know, the CEO and the, and the board members can, can authorize such a thing. So they could bring in teams and say, okay, we're going to have an inspection, comply with the inspection team. And um, then you could go in there and get a, get a clean bill of health, or you could uncover some, some improper things which lead you to uh, discovering some fraud or some embezzlers and so forth. So that, the randomness is a big thing. The, the second thing is, is an efficient, effective um, process. So um, you can't bring in uh, a team and have your have your staff stand around for two weeks. You, you've got to bring them in and get it done. So maybe you can be down for a day, maybe two days, but you you, you can't have your 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 team standing around while you have external folks testing your uh, financials. So you've got to have an efficient technology that can come in, uh, rip the data, analyze it quick and fast and highlight anything that has to be pursued, interview people who have to be interviewed as a result, and, and get it done in a, in a very efficient, effective way. So that's, that's the key thing, is, is have a plan and be random and be comprehensive. You know, the traditional testing has failed uh, for audits. You know, the, it's, it's, um, it's just not good enough to test and sample a little bit. You, you've got to run several years of bank records, and then you could really model them. Then you could really see how things have changed, how accounts, have, the behaviors uh, shifted, uh, where sources of money are coming from, where they're going, and, and what changes. Uh, those things should be fairly predictable and, uh, and should follow some patterns. And when they don't, the patterns will stand out with, uh, with some good analysis technology. You can, you can quickly find out that there's something not right in, in what should be happening in a company. So those would be the big three things I would suggest. Be, have a plan, be random, and be comprehensive. Is that right? Yes. Thank you, Susan and Tim, for joining us from Dulles, Virginia. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Susan 
Dian, Chairwoman of Actionable Intelligence Technologies, and Tim Dian, President of Actionable Intelligence Technologies, who discussed how white-collar crime goes largely unsolved. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the Hispanic NPR by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.